0: Well, I want you to think about three things this morning. I want you to think, first of all, about what it is that you think you know. Then secondly, I want you to think about what it is that you believe with certainty. And lastly, what is it that you might question? What is it that you might question? These are important to our lesson today on the story of the woman at the well, so-called. Uh... This is a story about conversations with Jesus, and these conversations today are pretty important. This is a a series of conversations that, in this case, impacts not just the person who Jesus has the conversation with, but many others as well. And that's the nature of conversations. In fact, probably you at some point have shared a story with someone, and you even had maybe hoped it wouldn't get shared elsewhere, and then it gets back to you that it has. Conversations have a way of coming full circle sometimes. And uh, interestingly enough, this conversation, man, it made a lot of circles. In fact, it has survived through history all the way to us today. Before I start, though, I want to share a couple of things. This is often called the story of the woman at the well. And a lot of people, when we talk about this woman at the well story, uh, we come into this with uh, an attitude and a, and a mindset towards this woman that's rather negative, It it focuses a lot on the salacious details, which we really don't get. We really don't have these. People have just speculated about all these marriages she's had and what's going on and what kind of person she is. But what's sad about all of that is at the end of this story, this woman is actually, she's a new woman. She's a very important person in the gospel story. And so maybe we we would be wise to consider this the parable or the story, it's a true story, of the new woman. Of the woman whose life was transformed, and focus more on what happens after her conversation with Jesus than all that had happened before. After all, I hope that's where you are. You don't want to be known by all of your mistakes from the past. You want to be known by how Jesus is transforming your life today. And so I want us to think about that in this story and think of her perhaps in that way. Now, this story follows in the next chapter right after uh, the events that had transpired in Nicodemus' story last week in John chapter 3. If you didn't get a chance to hear that sermon, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. That's a great conversation with Jesus. That's a very encouraging outcome from the story. This is happening soon after that. And the, the fourth chapter opens with a little bit of background material. It tells us that the Pharisees are, are jealous of Jesus... Uh, it says that Jesus is gaining a lot of followers. And a lot of people are coming and being baptized, and they're following Jesus. And, and the Pharisees are, are, quite frankly, jealous about that. They're concerned about that. And, uh, and so they're causing a lot of problems for Jesus. And so Jesus uh, sets out on a journey. I want you to hear these opening words, and then we will, uh, we'll get into some more details of the story. Chapter 4, verse 1 opens with now Jesus, and then moving forward a little bit, left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. But to do that, verse 4 says, now he had to go through Samaria. This is interesting. The word there that he had to do this has to do with being resolute. A similar construction shows up later on when Jesus sets out for the cross and tells us that he resolutely set out. Why do I mention that? Because Jesus could have gone around. He didn't have to. When it says he had to do this, it's saying he resolutely chose to do this. It was something he felt he had to do. He needed to do it. Not that geographically he had to do it, because he could have taken the bypass, which most Jews did. There was a way around Samaria, but Jesus chose to go through. This is something Jesus knew he had to do. It was important. It had meaning. It had purpose. I say that because this woman in the story is a woman who most of her life has not felt important, especially to the Jews. Some of you will remember a sermon I did before I went on sabbatical called The Lion and the Donkey Stood Watch. It was a story about the beginnings of the northern kingdom when when Solomon dies, his son, Rehoboam tries to be a harsh king. He wants to impose heavy taxes. And the people of the 12 tribes of Israel, they rebel. And 10 of the tribes under a labor leader named Jeroboam move to the north. They separate and break off to make their own kingdom, so to speak. And the nation of Israel is divided into the north and the south. The northern kingdom ruled by Jeroboam uh, could have had God's blessing because there was a lot of things that were happening that weren't good in the southern kingdom. But Jeroboam immediately does some things that are really bad. He sets up golden calves for the people to worship, one in the far north and one in Samaria. He makes Samaria his kind of headquarters. Now, God sends the prophet there to condemn him, tell him not to worship this golden calf. All those things happen. That's what that other sermon was about. This is part of the story of why the the Jewish people who have survived in the southern kingdom have bad feelings towards the north. There's a second thing that happens. The northern kingdom gets taken over by the Babylonians. And when that happens, some are carried away. And other people who left there, who are left there, who are Jewish men and women by birth, descendants of Abraham, they intermarry. They intermarry with people who are in the region. And this was something that was forbidden for the Israelites to do. God had said you can't do that. They were supposed to be a separate people. God wanted to be different from their neighbors. And because of that, it creates a problem. It creates a big problem for those that have been faithful in Jerusalem in the southern kingdom. Because when the Assyrians take over the southern kingdom and those Jewish people are exiled, when they come back home and they begin to rebuild under Ezra and Nehemiah, if they have taken foreign wives, this is one of the harshest things in the Bible, they they have to leave. They, they break apart families that are, are divided like that. And so they believe these residents of Jerusalem, the Jewish men and women of that time, that they were more noble. They had been more in line with what God wanted. One last thing, those northern tribes kind of pass away, except for Samaria, it kind of hangs out there, and um, through all those years, there hadn't been Levites or there hadn't been priests, but in the southern kingdom, that had continued to happen. They'd continued to follow God's rules and laws. And so this plays into the story, and it allows a kind of prejudice to develop, a kind of animosity to develop. Some horrible terms get thrown out towards the Samaritans by the Jewish people. And this woman has grown up in a world where she is always looked at as second class. Here's the sad part of that. She has zero choice for where she was born. She just was born geographically in the wrong place. Last week we said that, that in the story of Nicodemus, he'd won the lottery. He was a part of the seed of Abraham. He was born in the right place at the right time. This woman, not so. She's born in Samaria. In her whole life, all that she has heard from her Jewish neighbors to the south is, you're a half-breed. That's an ugly word, I'm sorry. but That's what they would have said about her. You're not pure. You're not good enough. I don't want to be around you. There was a kind of racism and a kind of prejudice that was, it was horrible. And she grew up with that. And it causes her to hate her neighbors because she recognizes and she hearkens back to the fact that, you know what, I'm still part of the, the lineage of Abraham. I'm still a part of that. So why are you treating me so horribly? I can't control what my ancestors did. This is the woman in our story. And if we approach the story with anything less than an understanding of this, we cheat her and we rob her of the incredible transformation that she, she makes. So when she comes to this moment, it says, Jesus said he had to go through Samaria because Jesus has always been about the work of redemption, and Jesus Although he understands the whole cultural thing and he understands the immorality that's happened, he also knows that he is on a mission to seek and to save that which is lost, and he is on a mission of redemption. So these opening words are important. When he says he had to go there, it's for a purpose. (laughs) This was one of the tasks that Jesus is about. (laughs) Something important, something big is about to happen in the storyline. Now, this is the thing I want you to gather as we go into this story. There are many, many times that we have no clue God has something big planned for us. The players in this story at the beginning have no idea we're going to still be talking about them almost 2,000 years later. But Jesus knows these people are important. He knows that you're important. And I recognize that within families and neighborhoods and and culture, there are some of you who have experienced this kind of thing. You've experienced hate and derision because of the family you're born into, or the place you're born into, or because of something that someone else in your family has done. And you bear that. You know what that sting is like. Some of you had co-workers that have just treated you horribly, maybe because of your faith, maybe for other reasons, and And it hurts, and you have to pray, Lord, help me to be patient with this person because they're so cruel to me. I want us to understand that that's behind the story because it's not that this woman is insolent and mean. She's wounded and hurt by all these things that have gone on around her. On top of that, life hasn't been so great for her in her own culture. We're going to learn quickly that she's had several husbands, but you should note this about the women of that era, they didn't have the ability. We don't think they had the ability to file for divorce. That was something only men could do in that area. And so these divorces, if they'd happen, were likely not what she had wanted. And in addition to that, it's possible some of these husbands have died, which, again, we hope she had no control over. That would be an uglier part of her story if that was true. So when we think about her context, understand this is a pretty fragile person who's been through a lot of difficult things. Some of you know what it's like to lose a spouse, either to divorce or to death. That hurts. It takes a while to get over that. Five times so? I tell you all that just to say, that's not where Jesus is going to leave her. And he's going to leave her a new person. Before we even get into her story today, the rest of the way, I want you to get this. If you come to this place today and it's not looking good, things in your life haven't been going the way that you hope they would or want them to or that you know they should, you don't have to leave here the same person you came in as. Because Jesus makes all things new. And in Christ, we can become a new creation. Well, this is her story. What I'm now going to call the story of the new woman. Jesus had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. It is near the plot of ground that Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, Jacob had, Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Joseph, the, the man who was responsible for helping to save the nation, all of Jacob's family from the, uh, the drought that was killing everyone off, and God put him in the place in Egypt to help protect his family. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, This is the first of five questions in the text. Pay attention to who asked the question and what how the questions are answered. Jesus asked something of the woman Will you give me a drink? And his disciples had gone into town to buy some food, so setting up this picture, Jesus is alone with this person at the well, and he says, would you you give me a drink of water? I mean, he hasn't brought a bucket and a rope with him. This particular well, we know, is about 75 feet to 150 feet deep, somewhere in that range. So it would take a long rope to get down to the water in this well. And um, Jesus naturally says, hey, would you give me something to drink? Now when Jesus asks something of us, there's always a lot more to that than just what's on the surface. And so this is the beginning of a conversation that asks with the question. It uses a question. And here's the thing about questions Jesus asks. When he asks a question of us in the Bible, it almost always leads to more questions that we have for him. So this one starts with, will you let me have a drink of water? And the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And John, who wrote this, wants to make sure we understand the political climate of the day. Jews do not associate with Samaritans. doesn't happen. She's like, what are you thinking? <laughs> All my life you tell me, your people, you people tell me I'm not good enough, but when you're thirsty, I can do the work for you to get you some water. It's almost this image of the husband who's sitting in the couch and tinks the glass and in, in his glass, expecting someone to get up and get him some tea instead of getting him himself. I mean, she has that kind of attitude toward this guy. What are you thinking about here? I don't know you. Why are you asking me to do this? You're, you, your people tell me all the time I'm terrible, that I'm nothing, that I'm worse than a dog. So, so why are you asking me to help you? I mean, understandably, she's frustrated. Jesus answers her. He says, well, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. I said for you to think about, what is it you think you know? That's important to our text. What is it that you believe? For this woman, everything is about to be challenged everything. God will do that to us, won't he? He'll shake us to our core sometimes. He will do that not to harm us or to hurt us, but to help us see what is true and what is right. In this case, this woman has some honest questions, and Jesus begins to give her some perplexing responses. The woman answers Jesus now with the word, sir. It's not a sign of ultimate respect like prophet or rabbi, which we'll come to later. But it's a sign of respect enough to say, okay, let's have a conversation not as enemies. It's a sign that she's softening towards Jesus. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. So where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well? And drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock. Why does she say that? It's an interesting place to go. Because I told you, she understands, has this chip on her shoulder kind of that she's gotten for good reason. That she's just not good enough. And so she believes something. And she's stating it to Jesus now. I am a descendant of Abraham. I am a descendant of Isaac and of Jacob and of Joseph. I am one of God's chosen people. And if ever there's a proof of that, this story points it out because Jesus chooses to have this conversation with her. But she's saying that to him. I have a right to drink from this well. And she implies this question of him. Do you have a right to drink from it? She's having some questions for him and kind of saying, I know who I am. Do you know who you are? Jesus is going to flip that and it's going to be, do you know who I am? Good question for all of us to think about. Do you know who Jesus is, really? Are you about what he is about? She asks a question, are you greater than Jacob, the one who gave us this well to drink, Jesus answered her this way, well, everyone who drinks this water from this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up into eternal life. I love this lady's response. The woman said to him, well, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, well, go back and call your husband and come back. And she answers, well, I have no husband. And this, is a, this is one of those times where it's not a lie, it's true, but it's not necessarily the whole truth either, because it's clear that she has another person in her life that means a lot to her, that, that they're probably sharing a house together. So, so she's not being completely honest, she's being evasive, yet Jesus, we're going to see, incredibly praises her for her honesty. It's an interesting thing Jesus does, because what Jesus says to her in response is, well, you are right when you say you have no husband. And now comes the big reveal. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Jesus is telling her things about her that she knows this man from Jerusalem has no ability to understand or know unless God's given it to him. Watch the progression now from sir to prophet. Sir, she says, I can see that you are a prophet. I can see that you are a man of God. So now this big thing that she's struggled with, right, this thing that she's always treated as second best, always treated as not good enough, it really shows itself now. It implies that she has wrestled with this before God. It implies that in her prayers, that at some point, she said, God, why is it like this? This isn't fair. This isn't right. This isn't just. Why do you allow this to keep happening? Some of us have been there, we felt that struggle. That's what she kind of feels, and so she just pours it all out. It just comes right out of her now. She, the whole thing that she's wrestled with is just going to get dumped right here in this spot, and friends, it couldn't have come out at a better time to a better person. I know people who are like, oh, you should never say this or that to God because he, listen, God already knows your thoughts. He's heard them as soon as they were formed. You aren't going to offend him because you had the thoughts. You'll offend him because you try to think that, that somehow you can keep it from him. Talk to God about the things that bother you. You should. He can do a lot more to fix them than I can or anyone else can. Talk to him about them. It all comes out. I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped right here on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. This is the argument This is why she gets looked down on. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Samaritans worship what they don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus is making a statement here. He's acknowledging a fact. Samaria and its history had not done everything that God wanted. They'd been disobedient. There had been wickedness that had happened there. It had happened also in the southern kingdom, but to a much lesser degree in Judah. He acknowledges a fact. And when he says salvation is from the Jews, it's important for us to remember that Jesus was a Jew. Salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. For God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Wow, the woman is now really getting her eyes open, and Jesus has challenged her, and She continues this theological conversation and she says, well, I do know this. I know that when the Messiah, the one called Christ, I know that uh, he is coming. And when he comes, he's going to explain everything to us. It points that she's been looking forward to the return of the Messiah. In her own way, she's understood that even though she was a Samaritan and she was born in the wrong place at the wrong time, that the Messiah, the true Messiah, was going to love her, care about her. She had perceived that. The Messiah is going to make it all clear. And boy, she'd carried that belief with her, and she was right. (laughs) And here it is. The Messiah is going to make it clear to her. I know when he comes, he's going to make it all clear, she says. Then Jesus spoke to her the words that everyone in Judah was hoping to hear, but hadn't heard it yet. Jesus, remember Nicodemus? Who are you? That was the question last week. What does he say to this woman that everyone looks down on? He says to her, I am he. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you've been waiting for. And you're right. I did want to come here and see you. I had to come here and see you. I'm on a mission of redemption today. Today is the day. I am he. Timing is everything, and the disciples seem to, to just have a knack for always being at the wrong place at the right time and the right place at the wrong time. Both those things happen in their stories. And right here at this moment of the huge reveal, the disciples walked back with lunch. Just then the disciples returned. They were surprised to find Jesus talking with the woman, but they were afraid to ask. So no one asked him, what do you want or why are you talking with her? So then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town. And she said to her neighbors, to the people who were there, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. I told you, questions are important in the conversation. And this is her question to her neighbors. Could this be the Messiah? I want to say something else to you about verse uh, 28 there. It says, she left her jar behind. It's just interesting. Remember that when Jesus calls the uh, disciples that are the fishermen, Peter and James and John, they left their boats and they followed them. Here she leaves behind her possession to follow them just interesting. It's kind of a clue of what's about to happen in her story. So the people from the town began to make their way out to where Jesus was, towards them. Meanwhile, his disciples urge him, Rabbi, eat something. And Jesus says to them, well, I have food to eat you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? They're trying to say, what is happening here? What do we know about this? And Jesus says, well, my food Is to do the will of Him who sent me, and to finish His work. What's Jesus been doing while they were there? He was working. He was doing His God given mission, the thing that God asked Him to do. And Jesus, when He says it's like food, says it satisfies me. I enjoy it. It's beneficial. It's life-giving. And friends, when we share our faith and when we help others come to Christ, you'll feel that same experience. It's a very fulfilling moment. It satisfies so much better than a mocha from McDonald's or a sandwich or whatever. It satisfies in a way that food can't satisfy us. And I should know. I eat a lot of food. And I've had the privilege to lead some people to Jesus. And I'd pass on a cheeseburger any day to help be a part of that experience with someone. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until the harvest. But I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest today. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. And when Jesus said those words, even now, he understands what's getting ready to go down, okay? He sees where it's heading. They have no clue. Thus the saying, "One sows and another reaps," is true. I sent you to reap what you've not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor." Then many of the Samaritans from the towns or from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. What do you think, you know? What do you believe? They believed because of what she said. They believed her testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged Jesus to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know, what do you know? We know that this man really is the Savior of the world. We know it. He really is the Messiah. I want you to get how huge this is. What do we say when we come to Jesus? When we make our declaration of faith, we say, I believe. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe it. You see, they're making a declaration of faith. They're making a huge decision. And there is incredible evidence that it all took, that it worked, that the people in Samaria remained faithful to God. God. That this is the, the birth of the very first of the church. We talk about the birth of the church on Pentecost, but gather that there are a number of Christ followers that come to believe in Samaria. And, and there are a couple of Bible scholars who claim that was one of the earliest churches known to have existed that has continued to exist even to the present day. What do you think of that? It's pretty incredible. Pretty incredible. Pretty incredible. I like something that a a pastor, Derek White, said about this story. He said, you must understand that this is the story of a woman who many saw as a nobody, who told everybody about somebody who can save anybody. And he did. He overcame racism and prejudice. Bias. He overcame a sketchy past. He overcame generations of hatred. And he brought peace and equality and respect and hope and love. And a preview, a preview to the people that everyone thought were second-rate, they were the first to get to see what was coming. And way before Peter would get to tell those 3,000 people to repent and be baptized, Jesus himself gave the preview of the day to the people that his disciples and everybody back home said they're just not good enough. What a conversation. Man, Jesus has great conversations. I've been challenging you, and you heard it in the prayers this morning. We, we need to be having conversation. We need to be in conversation with Jesus. I hope you're praying. I hope you're reading your Bible. I hope you're listening. And I, and I hope that you are mindful of this. Conversations with Jesus might take us in unexpected directions. And that's okay. Conversations that Jesus had with that woman led hundreds, thousands, maybe through the centuries, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands to know who Jesus is. What would happen if you made the same decision? Some of you have. Some of you already have said the same thing. They said, I believe. If that's your story, then you need to be sharing because the fields are ripe for the harvest. And just as Jesus went out, you've got a job to do. You need to be about your father's business. Be sharing that same hope that Jesus shared. And if you're here today and that's not your case, you're still where that Samaritan woman was, let this be the day you become a new woman or a new man in Christ. Behold, the old is gone. The new has come. Let that happen in your life. Doesn't matter what everyone else says about you. Jesus chooses you. He had to go to that land of Samaria for a purpose, and he has you here today for a purpose, for a reason. Let this be the day you say yes to Jesus. It changed that new woman's life, and it'll change yours. If you have a decision to make, would you make it as we stand and we sing our hymn of invitation?